Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. Well, Merry Christmas weekend, Hope Chapel. Merry Christmas weekend, Hope Chapel. Okay, all right. And for those of you who are visiting with us, my name is Mike Nazarian. I'm one of uh, the teaching pastors here at Hope, and on behalf of all of our church family, I'd like to welcome you and thank you for sharing your Christmas weekend uh, with us this year. As we get started, I want you to know that I have a gift for you this year, this weekend. You want to know what it is? You want to know what it is? We're getting warmed up. It is the gift of deep theological reflection. Today, this morning, we're going to excavate a theologically rich passage, and so we're going to practice, we're going to exercise some theological stamina. Are you ready for this? Okay. So, as we customarily do, please open your Bibles for the reading of Scripture. Our Christmas theme this year is drawn from a text the very beginning of John's gospel, so please open your Bibles with me to the beginning of John. Read along with me, beginning at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. On Tuesday evening this week, I came home to my wife and kids, our two vigilant dogs, and after a day of rigorous Christmas preparation here at the office, when I arrived at home, uh, we enjoyed a dinner together as a family, uh, and then Jackie and I put our children, Zoe and Zachary, down to sleep, and in that moment, when the kids were asleep, things were settled and serene. The dogs were calm and quiet, laying down by the fireplace where the fire was burning. 
We dimmed the house lights so that the glow from the Christmas tree was the only light in the house. We lit some candles, poured some eggnog. It was perfect. So to capitalize on that moment, we sat down for our traditional viewing of a classic Christmas film, a movie about an underdog whose life circumstances are stacking up against him, pushing him to the brink. As the story unfolds, he comes to terms with his own place in life, learning through his experiences the importance of how his life is not about himself, but about he should relate to others. Many of you probably are already thinking of the film that I'm referring to, one that lifts our hearts, our spirits at Christmas time. <laughs> Home Alone. Now, there's a part of me that does think that Home Alone is still funny and that it does actually have the potential to lift our spirits at Christmas time. I have to say this. The older I get and the more I'm shaped by God's Word, the more Christ seizes my heart. And with each passing Christmas season, the more I realize how hollow Christmas is becoming in our culture. Christmas in our culture can be funny, it can be entertaining, but to be blunt... Christmas has been debased. It's been reduced. Its glory has been amputated. To what has it been reduced? I don't even know if we could agree on a precise definition. Christmas has just simply become the holiday season, a thin veneer of holiday celebration with little substance behind it. But this reality, the secularization of Christmas in our culture gives rise to both need and to opportunity. It gives rise to a pressing need for us as Christians to celebrate, celebrate Christmas faithfully by retelling its essential message, which is found in and only in Scripture. On Christmas, as Christians, we celebrate the glory of Christ, amen, the glory of His incarnation. But the state of things today also gives rise to opportunity for us as Christians to offer hope to a darkening culture around us. Ironically, we live in a culture that proclaims its progress, that exclaims its enlightenment, yet at the same time cries out for, longs for some kind of transcendent goodness. Take, for example, a well-known song released by John Lennon and Yoko Ono back in 1971 a song whose lyrics are probably firmly established in most of our memories. The name of the song, So This Is Christmas. The lyrics are all too familiar. So this is Christmas, and what have you done? Another year over, a new one just begun. And so this is Christmas, I hope you have fun. The near and the dear one, the old and the young. A very merry Christmas and a happy new year. Let's hope it's a good one without any fear. And so this is Christmas, for weak and for strong, for rich and the poor ones. The world is so wrong. And so happy Christmas, for black and for white, for yellow and red ones. Let's stop all the fight. This song functions as a kind of cultural acknowledgement that there is in each of us the underlying awareness that things in this world are wrong. Could we all agree on this? There's a common longing in all of us for a reality, and to use John Lennon's lyrics, without fear and fighting, 
a common longing for a world that is not so wrong, but rather for a world that has been set right. Could we agree on that? Here's a question. Is mankind able by himself to set right what is so wrong in this world? The Bible's answer is no. In this world, we look around, we see greed, murder, war, genocide, disease, hunger, famine, calamity, suffering, pain, injustice. We see evil. No no matter how comfortable we make ourselves, no matter how much we may want to pretend that it's not out there, it is. No matter how comfortable we make ourselves, no matter how much we may want to pretend it's not in us, it is. We live in a world with much darkness. The only antidote for a world shrouded in darkness is a more powerful light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The message of Christianity is not that Jesus only brings light, but that Jesus is light. At Christmas, we celebrate light born into darkness. When we think about the Christmas story, we're quick quick to recall the narratives that are recorded by Matthew and by Luke. We think of the angel Gabriel visiting Zechariah and Joseph, foretelling the births of John and Jesus. We think about Mary visiting Elizabeth, of Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat. We think of the virgin birth of Jesus, of the murderous plot of Herod the Great, of Joseph and Mary's ensuing flight to Egypt. We think of the multitude of angelic hosts, armies, triumphantly announcing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. We think of the shepherd's consequent visit to baby Jesus in Bethlehem. We think of the magi from the east making their long journey to bring gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to the newborn king. These are kind of some of the main contours of the Christmas story according to Matthew and according to Luke. And having rehearsed these narratives Christmas after Christmas, year after year, it's easy for us to forget that there is yet one more Christmas account, one more record of the Christmas event in the Gospels. But this remaining record feels different than the others. It feels cosmic. It feels meta almost abstract and profoundly theological, because it is. It's written by the Apostle John, the last surviving apostle of Jesus. And in his gospel account, John beautifully expresses the Christmas event with theological precision and economy. He says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. One subject, two verbs, one object, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's here that we find the sum and the substance of Christmas. To borrow John Lennon's lyrics, so this is Christmas. I think that this verse and in the passage it serves as context for it, the Apostle John reveals Jesus clearly to us in at least three ways for us to celebrate at Christmas. At Christmas, we celebrate Jesus as God, we celebrate Jesus as man, and we celebrate Jesus as mediator. So first, we celebrate Jesus as God. John writes, 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So John doesn't begin his gospel with a baby named Jesus. Instead, he begins his account with a word, with the word. In the beginning was the Word. This seems mysterious and abstract at first glance. What is John getting at? Our first clue comes from his first three words, in the beginning. These words recall the beginning of the Genesis account, the very first words of the Old Testament, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Invoking these words is John's way of anchoring his Christmas account to the creation account. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning was the Word. And what happened at, God, at creation? What happened? God spoke, right? Genesis 1-4, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And so, the creation account continues, and God said, and God said, and God said. And what we see is God's powerful words as the agent of His creation. And His Word has the power to create light, to separate light from darkness, to raise land from sea, to bring everything out of nothing. His Word has the power to create and to give life, even to fashion mankind, us, you, and me, in His very own image. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning was the Word. The point that John is making is that the Word was not created in the beginning. Rather, the Word was in the beginning. The Word was pre-existent outside of space and time as we are bounded by them, pre-existing from eternity past. So John continues, and the Word was with God. But to be with somebody in some sense implies that you are distinct from them. Does that make sense? I am with my wife, but that implies that there is a sense in which I am distinct from her. So if the Word was with God and therefore somehow distinct, does that mean that John is saying that there are two gods? Absolutely not. Almost anticipating that very question, John continues, and the Word was God. The Word was God. That Word that is present with God in eternity past, that is present with God at creation, is likewise Himself God. In the Genesis account, we see God speaking and creating and the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. We also see God referring to Himself in the plural, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. At creation, we see God, His words spoken, the Spirit all present. But what's implied in Genesis is made explicit here by John, that God exists in community. One God, three persons. And to almost punctuate this truth, this reality with exclamation, John reiterates the word's preexistence in the next verse. Verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. In fact, to emphasize the divine person's personhood, John simply refers to him from this point forward as he. 
Are you guys still with me? Why are we laboring so meticulously over John's opening statements? Because John is carefully and beautifully demonstrating the deity of the pre-incarnate Jesus, of the Word. He's revealing for us the unmitigated divine glory of the Word. So he continues, verse 3, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The divine He that John speaks of is not an object of God's creation. Rather, He is the agent of God's creation. Think about that for just a moment. All things were made through Him. As if that's not definitive enough, conversely, without Him was not anything made that was made. Everything was created through Him and set in place. Electrons, photons, neutrons, all matter was created through Him. Mountains and oceans, every living thing, the earth, the moon, the sun, the solar system, all galaxies and nebulae, the totality of everything that is created through the Word. In an age of science, we marvel at the sheer magnitude of the universe, the incomprehensible vastness of what is beyond us, right? Thinking people recognize that we are utterly insignificant in comparison to the galaxies and the galaxies and the galaxies that are beyond us. To contextualize this, in all of human history, it's only relatively recently that we barely made it just to the moon and back, right? We are utterly minuscule on a cosmic scale. But you see, we so easily make the mistake of thinking about the universe when we do in relation to us, in relation to ourselves. But it's not, it's not about us. The vast, incomprehensibly complex expanse and arrangement of the universe exists to give us a humanly perceivable sense of God's glory, of His majesty, of His power, of His wisdom. This is why the psalmist says in Psalm 8, for example, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Or similarly, in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Creation speaks to His glory, to His transcendence, to His power. The vastness of the universe is the testimony to the vastness of the God that we worship. It all points to Him. The universe shouts glory, glory, glory to God Most High. And John says the Word, that divine person, that it was all made through Him because He is God. So at Christmas, we celebrate Jesus as God. But next, we also celebrate Jesus as man. Everything to this point in John's prologue has been a testimony to the glory and to the deity of the Word, the distinct person of God. 
And having fully unfolded for his reader the deity, the, the godness of the word, John has set the stage to recount one of the most unexpected, one of the most surprising events in all of human history. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh. The invisible became visible. The infinite became an infant. The Creator entered His creation. The Word who holds the stars and galaxies in place took on human flesh. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you remember earlier when I noted the brokenness of our world, the darkness? I said the only antidote for a world shrouded in darkness is a more powerful light. You remember that? You with me? How does a more powerful light come into a world shrouded in darkness? This is how. The Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. John says, in Him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When John says that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, he is saying that the light is shining continuously in the darkness. And as a matter of historical fact, looking back on the life in ministry, in accomplishment, the work of Jesus, he says, the darkness has not overcome it. This is a statement of historical, of spiritual fact. It is just as if Jesus says at the cross, it is finished. The darkness has not overcome it. So John tells us that the Word became flesh. John had a number of Greek words in his vocabulary to choose from when describing the Word's incarnation. He could have used the Greek word anthropos, human. He could have said that the word became human or humankind. He could have used the Greek word soma, body, and said that the word took on a body. But instead, John uses the word sarx or flesh and says the word took on flesh. This word choice is significant in that flesh it's kind of a crude term. Here's the key to it. Flesh is corruptible. The divine word, the eternal son, took upon himself in his incarnation corruptible human flesh. Flesh refers to a creaturely nature, a nature that is uh, opposite to and distinct from a spiritual nature, or namely the nature of God. These opposite natures are evident when in John chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, that which is born of spirit is spirit, that which is born of flesh is flesh. When the Word took on flesh, the Word took on another nature, a human nature, with all of human nature's associated frailty. He would get tired and need sleep. He would bleed when cut. He would have to learn and grow and develop. Maybe he snored. Now, at this point, we need to be careful 
as we wander into advanced theological territory, lest we step in a big steaming pile of heresy. So I want to be very important. I want to make a very important theological point. John is not saying that when the Word became flesh, that he ceased to be the Word and started to be flesh. That would be profoundly wrong. Rather, John is saying that when the Word became flesh, he remained the Word while adding to himself a fleshly nature. Jesus is the Word made flesh, fully divine and yet fully human. Two natures, God and man, fully God, fully man. But the Word did not only become flesh, the Word also, what? Dwelt among us. The word that John picks there to, describes the, to, to describe the words dwelling among us um, conveys this idea of taking up residence, but it just happens to be the exact same word that is used to describe the tabernacle in the Old Testament where God dwelt with His people Israel before the temple was built. Literally, we could say that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The main point is that God has now chosen to be with us, His people, in a profoundly more personal and immediate way than ever before. He dwelt among us firsthand, personally. And that's why we record we hear the angel saying to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He made his dwelling with us. So at Christmas, we also celebrate Jesus as man. But finally, at Christmas, we celebrate Jesus as mediator. And this is what we have been working slowly and systematically towards. You may have noticed something. I haven't spoken the name of Jesus many times, rather I've used the Word or He or the divine being. Why? That's because it's not until the very end of the passage that John comes right out with it. The divine Word taken flesh is finally identified and He is identified by name as Jesus. Verse 16, for from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So John says that from his fullness that we have in some sense all received. What does he mean by his fullness? Back in verse 14, Jesus is described as being full of grace and truth. So Jesus, being full of grace and truth, gives to us his people, those who have trusted in him, those who have believed in his name, Grace upon grace. I think that this phrase is better translated grace in place of grace. But in order to make that clear, we need to first make sense. I need to first explain 
verse 17. In verse 17, John says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. How many of us have read our Bibles a lot? Okay, considerable percentage of us. Sometimes when we think of the Old Testament, we think of the law, the Old Covenant, we think about kind of a testament or a covenant that's not gracious in nature. Like we tend to think Old Testament, Old Covenant works, New Testament, New Covenant grace. Is that fair? But in the, in the ancient Jewish mind, that was actually not the case. The Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant was profoundly gracious. I want us to think about this for just a moment. Did Abraham do anything to deserve God's favor? Did he do anything to merit being called out of a pagan people group and chosen by God to establish a new people, God's covenant people, Israel? No, he didn't. Of course not. In his grace, God chose and called and equipped Abraham. Similarly, God moved towards Isaac. Then God moved towards Jacob in grace. Fast forward to Moses who by God's grace, is chosen to graciously lead God's people out of captivity in Egypt, not because they merit it, but because God is demonstrating His grace. And when they're wandering in the wilderness after the exodus, grumbling and complaining and feeling sorry for themselves, wanting to go back to Egypt, wanting to go back into captivity, how does God give them His law? He takes the initiative. He calls Moses up to Sinai. And we read this in Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You see, God's grace, His initiative, His bringing them out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, is the basis for their obedience to the law which He is about to give them. Grace always comes first. God moved first. Obedience was a response to God's initiative. He came down to them at Sinai. He took the initiative. He gave them the law, which itself was a gift of His grace. Think about the law. In the law, God's holiness is revealed. He gives it by grace. Through it, it's as though He's saying, this is who I am, and this is who you are to be in light of who I am. Does that make sense? God gave His people the law through Moses, and that was grace. Are you with me? But now, John is saying that there has been this great, profound, divine movement from a God who has given to His people to a God who has come to His people. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So back to verse 16, we could render it this way. For from His fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace. The grace of the law has been superseded. It's been eclipsed by an even greater, a more comprehensive grace. From the fullness of Jesus, 
we receive a grace that is a saving grace, that is a final grace, that is an exhaustive grace, that is a thoroughly sufficient grace, and it is especially a mediating grace. Jesus, fully God, fully man, faithful mediator. I have a question for you. What is a mediator? What is a mediator? A mediator is a peacemaker, an intermediary, a go-between. A mediator intervenes on behalf of other parties. A mediator heals divisions. A mediator brings reconciliation. A mediator brokers peace. In Paul's letter, his instructions to the young pastor, Timothy, he says this, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul says this, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is the mediator between us and God. Jesus reconciles us to God. He makes peace for us with God. Are you with me? But how? We need to go back once again to Exodus to begin to understand how this is. So after God gave Moses the law, and after Moses descended Sinai, what did he find? He found all the people in a frenzy of idol worship, right? They fashioned the golden calf, and what does Moses do? He goes full Rambo, he breaks the tablets, he gets upset with the people. So since he's broken the tablets, what does he have to do? He's got to go back up and get more from God. He's also got to repent for the people. He has to be a mediator for them because of their sin. They're in trouble. They need Moses to go back up to Sinai, not just to get new tablets, but to also negotiate terms of peace with Yahweh, whom they have just spurned and sinned against and offended. So back up to Sinai. Moses cuts two new stone tablets. God engraves the tablets. And then in that moment, God discloses himself. He reveals himself more fully to Moses. It's like in this moment, God is saying to Moses, let me help you all understand just exactly who it is that you're dealing with. So we read in Exodus chapter 34. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. And what was Moses' response? And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Why did he do that? Because in that moment, Moses apprehended, he understood God's holiness, God's otherness, God's transcendence, God's power, God's justice. He understood that God was from above and that it was from the dust that he came and therefore it was to the dust that his forehead went. He understood that God must deal with sin. But here's the thing. God says that He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That sounds great, doesn't it? God is good, isn't He? Is God loving? How many of you are uncertain? But because God is good, God is also just. Therefore, He also declares Himself to Moses to be the one who will by no means clear the guilty. God cannot just not punish sin. He can't kind of like divinely look away and pretend that it's not there. To do so would be profoundly unjust. God is love. Yes, He is. But God is also holy and good, and therefore He is just. And so how do we reconcile God's holiness, His goodness, His justice, His righteousness, and His consequent righteous indignation, His righteous wrath against sin? How do we reconcile those attributes of God with His steadfast love, with His mercy, with His patience, and with His grace? With a mediator. But from His fullness, we have received grace in place of grace. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. Rather, He fulfilled it. Amen? He kept it perfectly, fully. He was perfectly righteous. He is the one mediator between God and man. He is the one mediator between God and you. He is the one mediator between God and me. And in order to serve in that mediatorial role, he must be both God and man. You see, only a human can pay the price for human sin. But only God can endure the wrath of God, conquer sin, and defeat death. Why must the mediator be a true and righteous human? Because God's justice demands that human nature, which has sin, must pay for sin. But a sinful human could never pay for others. Why must the mediator also be true God? So that the mediator, by the power of his divinity, might bear the weight of God's wrath in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Because Jesus, as the God-man, took God's wrath against our sins upon Himself. God's justice has been perfectly satisfied. His righteous wrath turned away from us who believe. And His mercy and His steadfast love reconciled and extended to us His children adopted as His own. You see, Christmas 
casts a cross-shaped shadow. The incarnation of the Word anticipates the crucifixion of the Word made flesh. All this to broker peace between us and God as our great high priest, as our perfect and faithful mediator. Amen? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, this Christmas, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your initiative, which is on magnificent display at Christmas when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us so that He might fulfill all righteousness, go to the cross as the full and complete and comprehensive God-man and satisfy your justice appease your wrath against our sin that it might be turned away from us and earn for us righteousness and life. Father, I pray for those who are here this morning who do not know the gospel and who just heard the gospel, that your spirit would quicken and turn their hearts to you fully and that they would believe and trust in your son Jesus and be saved. This Christmas, we pray that you would be glorified in our midst. Jesus, as we approach the communion table in this moment, we remember you as the pre-incarnate divine word, the agent of all creation, sustaining the totality of everything that is, who took on flesh for us. Be properly remembered in our midst this morning. We pray in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.